Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. The Senate passed an extension of the popular Paycheck Protection Program for small businesses, which was set to close down last night. With more than $130 billion in funding left over, the extension goes to August 8th. To get a, a latest on the PPP and where the money is going, we welcome Karen Mills. She's a senior fellow at the Harvard Business School, a former small business administrator for President Obama from 2009 to 2013. Karen, thanks so much for joining us here. So I guess the question is, how effective do you think um, the PPP has been for small businesses in this country? Well, I think it's been very effective, and I was delighted by our midnight surprise last night. I really um, had not anticipated that the Senate would take leadership and renew the PPP. $130 billion is a lot of money in the land of small business. And so far, the results out of the PPP have actually been pretty good. I know the headlines have been about, you know, big companies who didn't need it, who took it, but literally 5 million small businesses have gotten funding without which they would just not be alive today. So if we can get a little bit more out, I think we can save some more businesses. Karen, what about those that opened and have to now reclose because the virus is actually not going away at all? The curve is steepening in the US and not just those that reopened and have to close, but those who took the money and kept people on their payrolls and are not getting the revenue, and, you know, this will finish them. Well, you're exactly right. Uh, You know, the virus is not done yet. And even though, you know, there's been an attempt at all these reopenings, small business owners are worried, their customers are worried, and they're desperate, you know, because otherwise they're going to go out of business. So anything we can do to get money into their hands so they can, you know, survive, whether they're partially open, whether they just do takeout. We just need to get them funding because, as you know, small businesses have almost no cash reserves. And whatever they had, that's gone by now. So they are just living hand to mouth. And if we can, um, what I'd really like to do with this extra money is let them apply again because the PPP extension would only go to new folks who haven't applied. And I'd like to let, you know, uh, eligible businesses get another few weeks uh, of funding if they possibly can. I think that would be helpful. Karen, what do we know about uh, where the initial chunk of money went? Is there is there a good sense that there's oversight there, that we kind of know where the money went, who got it, who didn't get it, and, and so on? <laughs> Well, it's ridiculous that the SBA is not disclosing this. We disclosed everything. It's just table stakes. You know, the American people need to to know where their money is used. Um, So I can't imagine why you wouldn't disclose. And now they've said they're they're going to. What we do know is that about 5 million small businesses got money. Most of them got small amounts. And thank goodness we had some um, new players, some tech players, step in and help the banks because the banks were really struggling to get the small players their money. They just didn't have the mechanism. So then 
PayPal came in and Square and Intuit, and they put up these automated portals, which still are up, and allowed the sole proprietors who are eligible, they actually are eligible for PPP, a seamless way without going to a bank. Maybe they didn't have a bank. So that's done a lot of good to um, the small business owner. But disturbingly, there is an underrepresentation of minority-owned businesses in the PPP, and that's from some survey data from Alignable, and I think that's quite worrisome. would like to see that percentage go up because, as you know, there's a lot of inequity in the access to capital among underserved minority-owned businesses and, by the way, among women-owned businesses. And if yes. they fail in greater proportions, that's just going to hurt everything. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of problems with it in many, many ways. Karen, talk to me, though, about what you would do if you were, say, a restaurant owner or, you know, the owner of a franchise of of some chain of restaurants. And you knew that in order to access this money, you had to keep on 75 percent of your staff. But you're also pretty well aware that you're not going to be able to do 75 percent of your business, even in six months. Yet this is only supposed to tide you over for two months. I mean, wouldn't you much rather just fold up shop in order not to get up the hopes of all your previous employees, all your customers, your family? So small business owners now um, really are in a dilemma. And I think what they've realized is if you want to keep your business going, you've got to maintain some relationship with your set of employees. The good news is that Congress actually passed something called the Flexibility Act a few weeks ago, and they took that 75% number down to 60%. So only 60% of the money has to pay employees. They gave you more weeks to spread it over. And what that does is allow a business to stay closed longer and take that other 40% of the money and pay the rent and pay for utilities, and pay for debt service if they've got another loan. So it's well worth doing. And if you're a small business owner out there and Congress does get their act together and the president does sign an extension of PPP, I would go right away to one of these online portals or your bank. And uh, if you haven't gotten one of these loans, I, I have to say, Even if you're closed, you will find it useful and your people will get paid and you'll keep your relationship with them. You'll get to pay your rent. So I think it is well worth doing. And the forgiveness aspect, they are saying they're going to do blanket forgiveness and very small dollar loans. So I would recommend doing it. So, Karen, what are we seeing on the on the, you know, um, for these small businesses, how many of them are in fact going out of business? How many do you expect to go out of business uh, during due to this pandemic? Well, when you talk about this uh, percentage going out of business, you know my heart just yep. uh, you know rings about it because I think it's going to be very bad. Yeah. My prediction is twenty to thirty percent of small businesses will fail. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're seeing five to ten, but we really haven't seen the bankruptcies come. And that's going to happen in, I would say, two to four months uh, will be the peak of that. And the reason the number is so high in part is, sadly, there are a lot of businesses operating just on the edge. And particularly we've seen in the older generation, people will just pack it in. They'll just say, you know what, Um, 
I'm going to fold my tents. This is the time. So that is going to account for some percentage, and that will come all at once, not distributed over a year or two years. And the problem with a number like 20 or 30 percent means that it's very hard to have a U-shaped recovery Mm. because it takes 6 to 12 months to get a new business started on Main Street. Yep. So... It's Karen, going to be a while before yeah, they get replaced. It's going to be heartbreaking and uh, hopefully it will lead to some sort of rebirth of entrepreneurialism at some point in this country. Karen Mills, former SBA head, currently senior fellow at the Harvard Business School. Thank you for joining. A very interesting day for Hong Kong. China describing Hong Kong's new security law as a sword of Damocles hanging over its most strident critics. In other words, China is very pleased about it. It's not quite clear exactly what Hong Kong residents think about it. However, we did have Boris Johnson coming out today and offering citizenship to people who wish to move to Britain from Hong Kong. It's, of course, former colony. Let's bring in somebody who is on the ground there right now, as well as somebody who knows a lot about all of this. Jody Schneider is Senior International Editor in Hong Kong. We're also welcoming Andy Brown, Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy. Jody, the details of the law came out last night, about 35 pages. Have residents managed to digest exactly what's in it? And, and could you give us bullet points? Yeah, so this is, of course, um, very uh, historic, and it's coming, uh, um, it's the day 23 years ago uh, when China uh, took over Hong Kong. Hong Kong was handed over to China uh, from the UK. And uh, this, of course, is uh, very, um, it's concerning a lot of people here because it's very, um, the, the tough provisions in this national security law have really gone beyond what many investors and um, even uh, pro-Beijing politicians uh, had thought was in there. Uh, there's a lot of concern about whether it's going to have a chilling effect, not only in dissent in the city, but over free speech and, uh, and maybe even freedom of the press. Of course, the business community is very concerned about what it could mean for them and if they start to see uh, have trouble getting talent here and also how it could affect their businesses. There's a lot of vague language um, in the law, and so it's really generating a lot of confusion about what is allowed, um, You know, what kinds of speech are even allowed anymore here. And, of course, it's a very sudden kind of change. You know, One day, um, uh, well, uh, you could be arrested for certain kinds of things, now uh, you could be arrested in a very opaque kind of system. There were already arrests today that came um, with, with the protests here against the law and on, uh, on this handover day. Um, there were already arrests that they said were made uh, that uh, Beijing kind of boasted came under the law, including someone flying a flag um, that was proclaiming independence, that was seeking independence for Hong Kong. Hmm. Andrew, I was—I just happened to be in Hong Kong uh, on this day 23 years ago on a business trip, and I remember the handover clearly. And I remember thinking to myself, "This, there's just no way this is going to end well for the folks of Hong Kong. China is going to assert full control over Hong Kong. It's just a matter of time." I'm actually quite surprised it's it's, it's taken this long. What's the feeling, you know, as you think about the greater China's policy strategy? What is their view towards Hong Kong? Do you think? Well, Paul, I, I was in Hong Kong that day, too, um, and uh, you were obviously very precedent because I think um, quite a lot of people hoped and expected that since um, China and, and the United Kingdom had signed an international agreement uh, under which Hong Kong would retain its autonomy, retain its freedoms, retain its judicial independence, freedom of speech, um, freedom of the press, and so on, 
um, that this would continue as promised uh, for 50 years. And, and what we've now seen, of course, um, is that Hong Kong is becoming, to all intents and purposes, another Chinese city. It's going to lose its international personality. Um, and the trend is very clear now. It's going to become a financial center, more a financial center uh, for China and less an international. And those parts of the sort of the international uh, mandate of, uh, of Hong Kong as a, as a global hub will migrate to other parts of the region, after Singapore, uh, Tokyo, um, perhaps even uh, Taipei. Who is the moral arbiter here, though, Andy? I mean, is it clear that the wrong thing is happening? If China wants Hong Kong to help it become stronger in the international financial system, for example, isn't it doing the right thing for its citizens? Um, This is a, uh, it is a sort of Damocles um, and it's not a sort of Damocles that is handing, uh, hanging over extremists in Hong Kong. It's a sort of Damocles that hangs over the whole territory. As Jody says, this is way worse than anybody had predicted. Uh, not just in the fact that, um, you know, uh, you have four new uh, categories of crime, sedition, secession, terrorism, um, you know, and collusion with foreign forces, which are broad enough to encompass pretty much any action uh, or uh, Uh, expression uh, that the Chinese state doesn't like. Um, It also, by the way, um, uh, has no borders. So it doesn't just apply to Hong Kong and Hong Kong residents. It applies to actions and to people anywhere in the world. So this is really China stamping its authority over Hong Kong and defiantly saying to the rest of the world, we don't care what your reaction is. Jody, what do you expect the reaction to be from the folks on the ground? We've seen uh, protests, you know, really over the last year or so. What do you expect the uh, response to be? Well, obviously, um, the law and the law coming out on July 1st was, you know, (laughs) that was not coincidental. I mean, it was meant to try to quell dissent. This uh, has been put into effect after uh, eight months of uh, increasingly uh, anti-China, virulently anti-China, and um, and somewhat violent. They got more violent protests, uh, and there was uh, this was something that embarrassed the central government, and uh, and they they found that they didn't have any tools at that time to deal with it. Then you had a pandemic, and things uh, this the uh, demonstration stopped. And so they were yes, this is when they uh, were uh, decided to come in in this way to really quell not only the dissent. But right. um, to really try to, to um, you know, take take charge in a much more um, much more significant way than they had, even though in recent years there had been um, more uh, intrusions into Hong Kong's economy uh, autonomy. Excuse me. So right. uh, at this point, the question is just um, you know how do companies read this? How yep. do people read this uh, in terms of whether you know when they decide? Um, that they might leave, or um, if they stay, yep. what kinds of accommodations they're going to have to make to the okay. new law. And that's really the, the, the question. That's where we are. Yep. Jody Schneider, thanks so much for joining us, Senior International Editor and Co-Lead of Women's Voices in Asia for Bloomberg News. And Andrew Brown, Editorial Director of Bloomberg New Economy Forum. We appreciate your thoughts. Markets rebounding pretty dramatically off of those bottoms that we experienced right at the beginning of the pandemic in March and April. A lot of folks saying, gee, have I missed the bounce? Is it too far? Is the market too rich? What do I do here? Jack Janosiewicz, Senior Vice President, Portfolio Strategist and Portfolio Manager for 
uh, Natissus uh, Investment Managers joins us. They have about a trillion dollars in assets under management, so they know a thing or two about the markets. Jack, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, probably the commentary that we hear most from investors is, have I missed it? The market cratered during the pandemic. Certainly, we can understand that, but it's had a dramatic rebound off of the bottom. What do we do here? What are you telling your clients? Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on this morning. Um, you know, right now, I would sort of characterize the market. It's a, it's a push and pull right now between fundamentals and technicals and sentiment. And, you know, the fundamental backdrop is still, I think, a little bit squishy, but the bigger overriding factor, I think, are the, are the technicals and, and the, uh, the positioning in the marketplace. And so when we have our conversations with clients and they ask those sort of same questions to us, we're simply saying uh, we think there's further upside. And a lot of that is simply because some of the things that we follow, meaning the, the positionings that we see with our clients, uh, some of the internal models that we run, for example, for looking at CTA exposure, long short funds, um, retail investors, and I mean, we've been basically seeing net outflows since the beginning of, of March, or, uh, sorry, beginning of February. To us, you know, the positioning is still fairly light, and so even though we've bounced off the bottoms, uh, there's still plenty of people that I think have been caught sort of more defensively positioned, haven't really uh, enjoyed the gains that we've seen, and as a result, to us, the pain trade is still higher, and these guys are going to have to chase the market higher in here. So, you know, we're telling our clients we're leaning a little bit more to being still risk-on and think the upside is uh, where the market's probably going to continue to grind right now. What will convince these people to get in? And I agree with you, this is a sort of a contrarian point for many. They say that particularly Gen Xers and, and boomers, for example, haven't really participated because it, it didn't look like the most sure of things. But will there be something that will convince them or do we have to see a leg lower before they jump in? No, my guess is that you know the, the biggest uh, the biggest impact I think to, to that sentiment backdrop is simply seeing other people around you making money, right? And so, as more people sort of start to kind of capitulate and put money back to work, and then you have those conversations with your friends about how well your you know, your portfolio is doing, I think that's one of the things that you're going to start to see people get squeezed back in on. But uh, so that sentiment pr- uh, perspective I think matters, and then the other one I think is just getting a, a better sense in terms of feeling more safe with regard to the virus. And, you know, at the end of the day, we've been sort of telling our clients, listen, until we get a vaccine, you're going to have to learn to live with this. Um, We're slowly learning things along the way. And I think that's going to help. So when we start to have to sort of think about the potential for a second wave coming towards the end of the year, you know, we've learned how to deal with this. So maybe we don't have to have these draconian lockdowns, so to speak. They could be more targeted. And that's going to help people feel a little bit better about getting back into the markets because you're not going to have these severe lockdowns and have the, the ramifications filtering through the equity space as a result. So, Jack, what are some of the sectors that uh, you guys are looking at right now? Yeah, so we've been basically looking at a somewhat of a barbell approach. Um, you know, it's interesting. We still think tech is going to continue to be a, a leader going forward. But uh, more recently, tech seems to become more of a defensive play, right? Um, you're seeing a lot more of the uh, in the downside markets, you know, the NASDAQ continuing to outperform. And I think that's a function of that sort of stay-at-home economy will continue to benefit the tech side of the equation. But, you know, longer term, we still think tech is the right way to play this. Um, but we're also thinking that these 
reopening is going to continue. It's going to be choppy. It's going to be uneven. Um, but as that continues to sort of move forward, uh, that cyclical bias is going to come back and leak back into the market. So we're sort of thinking, you know, have a little bit of exposure to the cyclical side of the equation, also have a little bit of exposure to the tech side. And that sort of barbell trade, I think, uh, provides you with a little bit of upside, but also with a little bit of cushioning to the downside if we get a little bit of weakness too going forward. What about elsewhere? What kind of assets look cheaper now? What about real assets, for example, like real estate or gold? Yeah, so gold is the interesting one for us because, uh, you know, we've been doing a little bit of digging on the back of this. When you start to talk about your traditional 60-40 portfolio, you know, with the 10-year sitting close to 70 basis points on yield, you're not getting a ton of cushion. Um, And so even if, let's say, rates collapse to zero, um, I don't think there's a ton of downside or a ton of uh, cushioning that that spreads will give you with regard to trying to offset some of your equity risk. And so... Uh, I think we start to to look at gold really becoming more of that defensive posture for the portfolio. And so maybe we're thinking about replacing some of our fixed income treasury safe haven assets with gold. So maybe the 60-40 is no longer 60-40, but 60-20-20, for example. So, um, you know, it's tough with, with yields as low as they are to give you that sort of defensive cushion for the equity side of your portfolios. And as a result, you know, gold probably makes a little bit more sense just given the opportunities or the lack of opportunity out there for that sort of equity offset in, your, in the typical portfolios. Jack, fascinating to speak with you. Thank you very much, and, and do come on again soon. Jack Janoswitz is portfolio strategist and manager and the Texas Investment Managers. Plenty of money in assets under management, about a trillion dollars, in fact, Paul. So uh, yeah. they're, <laughs> they're, you know, yeah, <laughs> they're all over in every market, in every geography. Exactly right. So it's interesting to see. Uh, you know, Jack's still talking about some upside in this market, given you know the 45% uh, pop off of that bottom that we saw uh, there in uh, late March, early April. Got some auto sales data today. Fiat Chrysler, uh, General Motors uh, reported their U.S. auto sales. Uh, I guess they dropped less than expected. Let's get the details. We can do that with Kevin Tynan. He's a senior autos analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Kevin, what are some of your takeaways here as uh, we take a look at auto sales and we take a look at perhaps a, a signal of how the consumer and the economy is doing right here? Yeah, and I, and I think. Um for, for me, looking at the numbers, I think something like Fiat Chrysler gets a little bit lost in that that's a quarterly number, right? So nothing really happened in, in April and May. And just like uh, in the first quarter, you know, a lot happened in January and February and, and half of March. But um, I think, you know, what you're going to get is pretty strong June, um, if you break out those numbers and can see them monthly, which you can do with some of the Asia-based automakers that are still reporting monthly, like uh, the Hyundai brand out of Hyundai Kia was plus 6% in June. So I think that's what you're getting is that this less bad of big, you know, a big drop number is actually pretty decent coming out of June. I'm not sure how sustainable that is given supply issues, but um, I think there's reason for hope that we get back to normalized numbers relatively quickly. Were people spending their stimulus checks or how were they paying for it, Kevin? Or is this all going on sort of the never-never and, and will that become a problem? Yeah, well, it looks like, Bonnie, that the, um, you know, the incentives that are being rolled out, and, and I tell people this all the time, look, incentives are about managing inventory. There is no inventory. So I think people think this might be a buyer's market because automakers want, you know, need to generate revenue. But 
if, if dealerships only have so many of a specific product, they're not really going to throw good money after bad uh, and sell down supply at lower margins. So what you're getting, the incentives are these long-term loans or 0% or deferred payments, which... You know, it looks good and it entices the buyer into the showroom, but really all it does is create negative equity where, you know, you have to own that vehicle even longer, otherwise you're going to continue to owe on it. So, Kevin, where are we in terms of manufacturing capacity? Uh, We know that most of the U.S. auto plants were shut down because of the virus. They're starting to open up right now. Where are we? Yeah, uh, not very close yet. Um, you know, looked at the May numbers of production, and it was like a minus, you know, 70, wow. 75%. So we're still, you know, and April was basically zero. Nothing was built in April. Uh, May was just under 400,000 units. But to put that in context, May of 2019 was 1.5 million units. So that's about how far away yeah. we are. One of the better performers was Toyota, in fact. Their sales were down 26.7%. The estimate was 33.4%. But the other notable thing about Toyota today is that it became the second most valuable car maker in the world behind Tesla. Now, that might all change as soon as as trading starts up again, particularly in, in Japan, obviously. But... You know, what does that say about the whole system? Are we looking at kind of, you know, legacy companies at this point? I I guess it's such a difficult topic. I mean, almost I've gotten to the point, Vonnie, where I look at ranking auto companies by market cap is like ranking them alphabetically. So, you know, by that measure, Aston Martin is way ahead of Tesla. So for whatever that's worth. But, you know, I mean, if you're going to pick that one measure, yeah, but, you know, talk about volume, talk about profitability, yeah. talk about, you know, all these other things that we use to value automakers. And it, you're right, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but, you know, if I'm looking at the fundamentals and the structure of a company, you know, I still kind of like Toyota. So mm-hmm. anyway, just Kevin, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I, I note that this is going to be something, Vonnie, for Kevin, that Tesla's has a bigger market cap than Toyota, as you were mentioning. And it's for tried and true auto analysts, that's got to be tough to swallow. Yeah, I mean, he, he didn't sound too convinced. So let's just put it <laughs> that way. We'll see what happens in the, in the trading for the rest of the month. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.